Hello, my name is John Hendren, and you're listening to BotCast. In this episode, we're taking a look at the first Prelude and Fugue in C major, BWV 846, from Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. Um, this is a collection of pieces that has a lot of controversy, or disagreement maybe, about the title and what Bach may have meant from it. And one of the most interesting things that I've learned uh, in trying to better understand and appreciate these works, these preludes and fugues, is, is the discussion about the title page. So there's a little drawing, if you will, on the title page, and some commentators believe this is a, uh, a kind of a clue that's left by Bach to explain the title. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of the language because I'm not uh, a German scholar I'm, and I'm not well-versed in old German of the 1700s versus today's German. But there is some controversy over what Bach meant by the title. And I think it is um, worth bringing up to understand why preludes and fugues need to be in different keys. As, as you may well know... You can play any piece of music in any key, right? It's it's where you start and where you end, and that the, the relationships, the skips between notes, those, those spaces, a whole step, we call it our half step, that those are maintained. And so um, you just heard a little bit of the C major fugue, the second half of this work, and it was performed by uh, the Emerson String Quartet. They came out with a... Uh, a release of Bach fugues, um, and they're they're kind of just grabbed. Uh, I believe there are what 12, 12 tracks in this release. No, well that's odd. My computer is telling me there are twenty one tracks, but only twelve exist. I'm missing somehow missing some. That is, that is one of the issues that I've been suffering behind the scenes as I, as I do these podcasts and to learn when I go hunting for stuff uh, what is uh, missing from my system. I, I recently, uh, I use iTunes. I'm, I'm an Apple person, so I've, that, that sort of is the, the, uh, the big option we have on a Mac, at least the mainstream option, right? And I use iTunes, and I've recently switched computers. I've, uh, I was running a Mac Pro since 2009 and I decided to finally I needed to upgrade and I've switched over. And what happens when you go from a Mac Pro that can hold four hard drives in it to, a, to an iMac which has flash storage in it uh, is you need to figure out where to put all your stuff. And so uh, in moving my library around I've, I've come into some issues. The other reason I realize as I sit here that I might be missing tracks is because I've searched just for the number 846. Um, I do tag as much as possible, and sometimes I don't tag because there are other people tagging the music, and frankly, I think I do a better job than what uh, iTunes does. Uh, I bought this from the iTunes store, this release on the Emerson Quartet, this Deutsche Grammophon, and you know they title everything and it, it makes me mad because they, they categorize it as classical and I have to go back and say no it's Baroque. Baroque is different than classical. Um, and what they did is they basically, I'm looking at this, I really didn't know what piece I'm getting because it's 
they've just labeled it uh, Wool Tempier de Clavier Book One, and then they give the range of BWV numbers. And so my 846 appeared in every one. Uh, and that's why theirs are missing. That makes sense now. Um, because the other set of fugues come from the second book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. Um, so that aside, yeah, I use uh, iTunes uh, to manage everything, and it's now stored on network-attached storage. And But yet I have had some little issues with, with the library, and uh, uh, I have had to do some little fix-it repairs. Luckily, I have things backed up still on the old computer. The old computer is still functional, so if I need to, I can go back to that. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about uh, this topic in another episode. I don't want to dominate this discussion about my issues in finding the tracks to be able to, to drag them in here for you. But back to the meaning of the, of the name, uh, the title of this work. Um, the idea is that, yes, Bach could have written that fugue in D major, could have written an E major, could have written an E flat major, and you have to ask the question, why? why? Why does a composer, when they sit down, pick a specific key? And sometimes there's very pragmatic reasons. For instance, if you're writing a piece of music and you have a singing part, you might be placing it in a specific key so that it fits the voice range of your performer. And many times there'll be performers who want to perform a piece, but it's in the wrong key for them. And so they will ask a pianist, let's say if they're being accompanied by piano, to say, hey, can you take that down a whole tone? Can you take it down a third? So if it was in E major, we'd be playing it in C major. Um, and so that's a very pragmatic reason when you're playing with other instruments, let's say. In Bach's time, he had these issues where you would go to different um, locations and there'd be a pitch standard chosen for an instrument, like an organ, right? You're not going to change the pitch of an organ with a switch. And so everybody had to match that. You had to tune, if you're going to play along with the organ, to that specific pitch. And the funny part is there was no real standard. People pick something around something. Um, today, you'll see a lot of historically informed performances um, kind of standardize on 415. And that's important for a couple of reasons, because a string instrument can really have a wide range uh, where they play, because all they have to do is turn the tuning pegs, and um, if it's a big jump, you have to let the instrument kind of get used to that. But after a few days, you could play in any key. But what about the woodwind instruments, right? Um, a flute or uh, an oboe or something like that. So when these instruments are being constructed, they're being constructed at different kind of pitch centers. Um, and that was a practical consideration too. But then we look at this, it's like, well, Bach isn't writing for accompanying a voice. He's not writing with an instrument, instrumental accompaniment. What is the sense of the keys and, and, and all that? Well, we know that in, in Baroque times, and I'm using that, that, that label very loosely because it's a huge you know, period of musical history, about 150 years that, you know, we say 1600, 1750. We make it nice and even, 150 years. But even across that, because that's not perfect, we have Baroque style that's gone beyond Bach's death in 1750, and we had Baroque style that we could trace back just a little bit before 1600. And it gets messy because, you know, we had Gallant style and, and the, 
the seeds of classic, the classical style that we recognize in maybe like Haydn and Mozart, that overlapped with Bach's time as well. So we hit, these styles are not clear cut. But during that period of time, let's just say 1700, we know that there were different ways to tune instruments. And some of these choices were made, again, like an organ, that choice had to be made on the instrument itself and was not going to change. But then there were instruments like a violin or a harpsichord or a woodwind, not, not a woodwind, excuse me, where you had some flexibility. And in keyboard music especially, um, different systems were invented and were being circulated and being tried out. That was like the latest thing. Uh, you know, today it might be uh, a teenager gets a car and wants to mod it, right? They go and they, they, they lower it. They get bigger wheels. They, they, you know, they take the standard muffler out and they put one that makes more noise. Um, so we would spend all our time and energy on modding our car. You can kind of think of that in that kind of same mentality. Uh, musicians were, were playing with different tuning systems. And these are, were somewhat theoretical in that uh, we were learning around this time that the theory of music uh, and the theory of acoustics weren't entirely in sync um, because you would have these perfect keys uh, where the, the notes were so spaced and they make these really true, beautiful, clear chords uh, when the notes are played together. And then you would do that transposition I mentioned, say going from E major to C major, and all of a sudden, whoa, that C major chord doesn't sound good anymore because the instrument was, was tuned to really take advantage of E major. Now, E major is not a real close cousin to C major. There's, there's, um, there's several sharps in that key. And so even though the E is the middle of a C major triad, um, if you were to play uh, a tuning optimized for E major, a perfect tuning, and then we go to C, you would you would shake your head and go, whoa, hopefully you could hear this because this is kind of important. It would sound really out of tune. And so the idea was let's make keys, let's make, excuse me, temperaments, as they called them, that could be played in multiple keys and sound okay. And why don't we have these issues today? Well, at some point, somebody came up, and this was during Baroque times, this concept of equal temperament. That you could mistune just a little bit so that any key on the keyboard would sound the same. You really couldn't tell unless you had you know, this perfect pitch type ability to see uh, and some folks see color when they when they see pitches, and that helps them identify a pitch. But the idea is that you could play, yes, that fugue in C major from the well-tempered clavier and transpose it to G or transpose it to E flat, and it really would kind of sound the same. And what happened uh, is that was standardized on pianos. And so when you have a piano tuner come to your house or you decide to try it yourself, you are basically adopting that tuning system, which makes the relationship between uh, the notes in a scale slightly mistuned. They're not theoretically pure. And that is a nice approximation. We've become used to that. And we, of course, 
sit down at a modern piano and you're playing, let's say, some jazz music and it's transposing keys and you've got lots of seventh and ninth chords in there, um, it all sounds great. And you're not going, your head's not turning to the side, just a little bit and go, ooh, ooh. Um, what we lost in doing that was the idea of spice and flavor in the sound. And I equate this to, to eating a food and how you might take a, a spice, um, not necessarily a hot spice, but it could be hot. And you're sprinkling a little bit of that in your soup or over your meal or something. Um, and you realize, oh gosh, you know, I wish I had more garlic. I want to add more of that note to it. And we have these preferences for how things taste depending on the relationship of all those different flavors and spices. Uh, the music is kind of like that. And so what happens is when you choose a non-tempered, if you will, uh, tuning system, is that some keys will sound different than others because the compromises made uh, aren't strong enough, I would say, so that all keys sound good. Maybe just three or four sound good. And then if you go way off, you know, you jump up three sharps, four sharps, five sharps, or you go the opposite direction, you're adding flats to the key. That all of a sudden now it doesn't sound quite right. It sounds mistuned. It sounds, uh, just sounds wrong. And what happened is when composers would be playing on one of these um, systems, they could arrive on a chord, let's say, that just, whoa, all of a sudden it was perfect. Uh, there is an example. Um, when I play, I have an electronic keyboard, which makes adjusting the tuning systems very easy because all I have to do is hit a button and digitally it's, it's doing it. And so I can very quickly um, hear the differences between different systems, which is kind of a cool thing to be able to do. And it's really easy to do. Uh, and there is a particular piece that I like to play that's in the key of G minor. And when I choose a, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it is. Um, when I choose a certain uh, key center uh, and a tuning system, when I hit this E flat major chord, so we're going from a, a two flat to a three flat type thing, um, it just, when you land on it, you, you know you have landed on it. And it just gives me this sense, because of the way the chord hits the music, uh, I very strongly feel that that was intentional, that when you get to that chord, you want that kind of perfect sounding tuning on that chord because it just mm, it just is really kind of, you, you feel like you've arrived. Um, and so composers could exploit certain harmonies based on a key center. So with all that explanation, hopefully that was kind of clear how that works. I try to not get too technical. The idea with box music is that either he wrote, you, got, you can take one side or the other basically, and it's probably the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but one idea is that Bach wrote in every key because he was advocating for a, a tuning system that allowed you to play in any key, right? So I could play the C major opening prelude and fugue in any key, and it would sound great using this equal tempered scale. There are a lot of other people that say, no, Bach wasn't advocating for this, or Bach wasn't intentionally trying to promote this. Instead, he was promoting a, a different system that would give a different flavor 
to each one of these preludes and fugues because they'd be slightly differently tuned based on one tuning system. So it was a tuning system where you didn't have to go adjust every prelude and fugue. I mean, imagine if you try to play three of these, you'd be, you know, getting your little tool out and retuning re every time. But maybe not equal temperament, but giving a different flavor. The other reason that, and I'll end this diatribe uh, very quickly. The other reason that composers would choose one key over the other is because of the way it's, it's facilitated when playing the instrument. In other words, it feels good in your hands. Um, I'll give you an example. On the piano, I don't like playing keys that have lots of sharps and flats in them. That's because I'm not a great pianist. A good pianist wouldn't fear playing in those far-off keys. Uh, but an amateur pianist would. They're like, oh gosh, you know, I have to remember to hit all those sharps, or I have to remember all those flats. Um, where it gets worse, however, is when you're playing instruments that aren't well suited to those keys. Uh, I formerly was a trombonist, and uh, the trombone as an instrument is centered around the, the, the B-flat as its center. You, you, the, the lowest note you can play in what we call first position where the slide is closed is B-flat. Uh, not C, not D, not G. So if, you've, if you think just for a minute that my key center on this instrument is around B-flat, and the key centers for a violinist would be G, D, A, and E, those open strings, you, you start to see that, whoa, on the violin or on a string instrument, they may favor sharp keys, keys with sharps in them, because those notes are the, are the tonal uh, foundation for those keys. G major has one sharp, D has two, A has three, E major has four. So you typically will see lots of sharp, heavy music for strings and for brass instruments like a trombone or uh, like a clarinet, more woodwinds, you'll see more flats used than sharps, just as a general rule for, for beginners because the instrument just kind of lays there. And so if I was a trombonist, the, the key of A major, for instance, really doesn't scare me because I just, you know, I just have to remember where to put my slide for all those sharps. And that wasn't a hard thing to do as a as somebody who played the trombone for quite many years, just like a, a concert pianist would have played the piano, you become accustomed to playing in different keys, and it's not an issue, and you, you practice playing scales in different keys. Um, that said, you know, violinists probably don't feel as comfortable playing in a very flat, heavy uh, key center because you're having there's no open strings that are going to really work every note has to be you know flatted so that's why when a composer and i remember um writing this in a recent review why they chose this particular key for the violin i had no clue because the key sounded awful to have to play on uh, a violin um but why sometimes it's just where your fingers are and how comfortable it is to play um, and I will tell you that um, looking through Bach's Preludes and Fugues, some of them do feel comfortable. Others feel mm, maybe, but of course I'm comparing my amateur um, experience on a keyboard instrument to Bach, who is one of the greatest keyboard players likely in musical history, uh, at least by the accounts of what he left us in uh, as a composer. So with that out of the way, what do we have in this? Why is this 
Prelude and Fugue, the most popular in the set. And I will give you my rationale. It's in the key of C major. Um, young kids, when they learn to play the piano, they eventually get to Bach. And this is what the, the fugue is not something everybody hand tackles because the fugue is actually not uh, an easy fugue. It's in the key of C major, if that makes it easy for you. But uh, the prelude is very easy to play. Uh, it appears in a notebook. Uh, this has been known as the Anna Magdalena Notebook. Uh, these are various pieces of Bach that were played in his household. Um, it was basically written out by his second, that's his second wife, I believe, right? Anna Magdalene was the second wife. Um, and it was believed that this was like a training manual for the Bach family. And they kind of had this, just it's kind of a favorite thing to, to learn from. And so... One of the pieces in that book is the opening prelude uh, from the Well-Tempered Clavier. And it's a little interesting piece because um, it's, frankly, it's, it's very much unlike anything else in the catalog because it, it reminds us of another instrument. Uh, you'll hear this sometimes redone on harp. You'll hear it done on uh, plucked instruments. It just has this, it's almost like a lute piece. Um, it's basically arpeggiations, chords that are repeated twice each. And at the end, he breaks out and you get a little flourish at the end. Um, and it's, it's sort of warming up the instrument, if you will. We have to look back to where preludes came from. In the tradition of French harpsichord music, we look at composers like Louis Couperin, who wrote preludes, and they were... Um, if you look at the music, you start to scratch your head and go, wait a minute, they forgot something here, didn't they? No, he, he wrote kind of an open notation, a series of notes, but no indication of time and without bar lines. And it was just kind of a free improvisation. He'd give you the notes, which were indicating the harmony. And we don't know a lot about, about actually how it sounded when different people played it. We, we make our approximations today. And so this is kind of Bach's nod back to that, except Bach writes it out, which may give us an idea of actually how it sounded. And one of the things that a performer has to make the decision about in this first movement is how regular they are going to play this. Are they going to play it kind of a freestyle and just say, well, Bach wrote it out, but yes, I'm going to kind of play with time a little bit. Time's going to be kind of elastic and flexible. Or am I going to play this like it was a computer with precision? And of course, when we get on a harpsichord, you don't want to be somewhere in the middle because it will sound messy because the harpsichord is a very mechanical sounding instrument. There was no sustain pedal, right, that we have on a piano to help smooth over things when we're playing elastic with time. So because this is a hugely popular piece, because it's easy at least easy, easy entrance for, for amateurs to, to begin playing this. And because it's the first one, I think all those things make it one of the most popular pieces. And you got to think, too, that Bach was probably kind of aware that he's going to put the, the first, the headliner piece, right? You wouldn't want to put your best one in the middle somewhere. You'd either want to put the beginning or the end. And uh, that's why I've chosen to look at the first and last, because I think they're really two of the um, strongest examples out of this collection of the first book. 
So without further ado, uh, I want to play for you the prelude. If you don't know what I'm talking about yet, I think you'll recognize it because this piece has been redone and redone and redone. And then I hope to share with you uh, some interesting um, uh, performances of this work. Hopefully I surprise you with a few um, and hopefully you enjoy the music. So first up will be, um, this is actually a uh, recording I reviewed, I think just a couple years ago. This is Andras Schiff, Schiff, Schiff. I'll be American and call him Schiff. Um, pianist has been known for playing Bach for a number of years. He is uh, not historically informed per se, although his recent um, kind of revelation with playing Bach on the piano was he does not think it's appropriate to use the pedal. And I just mentioned that this first piece on the piano might be helped if you're going to kind of play with time loop by using the pedal, and he does not. Um, so he's somewhat historically informed, and that's the interesting thing that's happened, I think, in the world of early music um, since the, the beginnings of the historically informed performance practice that really started near the 1920s, uh, really picked up in recording starting in the 60s, 70s, and today it's almost like um, there is a compromise being made by some uh, what I will call mainstream or um, players who were really trained in the more of a romantic tradition um, when they go back to play Baroque music because now they have this... Um, you can't deny some of the, the science, if you will, or the social science. We go back and there are treatises that say, this is how you perform this music, and then you're not doing that, and you're saying, well, wait a minute. And it's not necessarily like Glenn Gould who decides, well, maybe the piano isn't the right instrument and experiments and goes and plays on a harpsichord uh, or uh, modifies the piano to be more harpsichord-like. Um, or another example would be Keith Jarrett, who uh, is probably most well-known for being a jazz uh, pianist. Um, but he has recorded the well-tempered clavier, and he's done so in two different volumes, volume one and volume two. Those are separate recordings, and the first one uses piano, the second one uses harpsichord. Um, so there are there is this kind of um, cycle, if you will, of the scholarship and the um, aesthetics that have been involved in historically informed practice that have come back. Uh, and now I would say we're in a, you know, a different generation where, yeah, we're playing the instrument that Bach wouldn't have had. It's a different sound. It's a different quality. Uh, but I'm going to play in a way that really isn't so far removed from what those performers and the audience would have heard back in the 1700s, which is kind of interesting. Um, I'm not against it. I, I will listen to anything, and, and before I make my judgment, I want to understand, however, uh, when I listen to something, what what compromises or what, what was important to the performer making those choices. Uh, some performers are, are simply not going to be that flexible. They're going to. I'm a pianist, so everything I play is going to be on the piano, and that's fine. Uh, but as a consumer of this music, as a connoisseur of this music, it's helpful to understand. And there are nuances between different instruments, different uh, performance practices that really can help us, I think, 
uh, appreciate what's there in some some way, ways more than others. Um, and it doesn't mean that the historical is necessarily going to always win out. Um, the example that I used with the B minor prelude and fugue, I really liked the performance by uh, Friedrich Gulda, which was on piano, which used an articulation style that really wouldn't work on the harpsichord. It might have been informed by the sound of a harpsichord. I can't know because uh, he's not around with us for me to go ask him. But uh, those are, uh, to me, that just amplified the music for me. And so it's important to, I think, listen to different things. And with a piece like this, it's so familiar. You're going to hear lots of examples today of what can be had by changing the timbre, the instrumentation. Uh, we're going to hear, just like we did, we start with a string quartet. This is not string music, it's keyboard music, but it works. I think fugues always work with a string quartet uh, set of strings. Uh, in the last... Um, Review I just finished. We're look, listening to the Goldberg Variations performed on a vial consort. And there's something to be said when you take that very homogenous sound from one keyboard and now you separate out to different voices per line. I think it helps bring a little transparency. So let's see what we, what we think about Andra Schiff on the piano. I will tell you up front, um, I think he takes a middle-of-the-road approach. I don't think he's pushing anything too hard. He's kind of a relaxed, easygoing guy. There's been a lot of video that came out around the release of this on the ECM New Series label um, with him talking about this new, new project. And he is, incidentally, one of those uh, performers who sees different color when he plays. And he, um, without getting into messing around with how the piano is tuned, he hears different sees, excuse me, different colors with these works. And I'm not sure it's always associated with the key center, but the flavor of the pieces. And that's kind of an interesting thing. So without further ado, Andra Schiff. So hopefully that gave you a flavor of, of his style. First thing I'm going to say about it is that you have to have very good control of your articulation on the piano to play like that. Again, no pedal. It has a almost quasi legato quality to it, and that's because of the length of time he's holding down the keys and the keyboard. Again, it takes skill to, to practice that way. You also heard just about a little bit before I uh, um, took down the volume that he had a little bit of a nuance there. He just a little bit of a pause. So Schiff's performance to me, and it's indicative of the entire set, uh, is very much around small micro nuances. Nothing is over the top, 
but it's not to say there's nothing there. If you listen carefully, if you kind of, this is great headphone music to put headphones on, I think, just to shut out the rest of the world, concentrate on a few of these, because he is a sensitive player, and he is putting some um, interpretive uh, affect into the music, uh, but it's subtle. And the tempo, I think, because of the way he's playing, I think the tempo was maybe on the faster side, but it works. Um, I certainly have no uh, objections to that tempo, but you'll you'll find that the tempo will be all over the place for this particular prelude. Some people really take it slow. Some people decide, well, you know, because it's so easy, it, it just feels good in the hand, I'm just gonna rush through it. Who knows the rationale, but you'll hear lots of tempo variations. For that, I liked it. But it probably was, if I had to draw uh, an average line, it was, on the, it was on the right side rather than the slower side. So, Andra Schiff. I'm going to let you hear now from the same performer, the fugue. We heard the opening fugue. Um, just to give another flavor of how he interprets this second half of BWV 846. So fugue theme, it's easy to remember, it's easy to hear. It's easy to sing even. Uh, I think that's one of the the hallmarks of, of a good composer, uh, putting your best work. This is a really good fugue. It's um, I like the theme. I think it's easy. It's approachable, just like the first movement was approachable. Uh, it can take on some different uh, moods, if you will. Uh, you could you could you could be more aggressive with this this fugue if you wanted to. Um, but shift kind of is again relaxed, not too slow, pushing it forward. Very very subtle nuances in the mu- in what he's putting in there. Um, but the theme is such that it's 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 one of those things that's very easy to hear. With each entrance, you're going to hear it, um, which Again, you think of Bach, who's puts a lot of um, puts a lot of uh, effort into writing this way. Who's championing the idea that we take a theme and mix it? You know, he was about counterpoint. This is his his main skill, uh, and so he chooses a very uh, approachable theme to open for this first work. I. I I would think that if he were to take any of these pieces and across both books, this is, you know, this is an easy one for us to hear and make sense to open the work, uh, the whole book, if you will, uh, with, a, with a theme like this. It just is a, is a nice um, theme, nothing controversial about it, nothing that, you know, in weird leaps or anything that would say, ooh, that's, you know. Uh, and it, it kind of stays in its key easy enough so it's you know um it's it's not like the uh, royal theme from the musical offering with 
all the chromatic things in there. Uh, and it became this this these pieces became sort of the bread and butter for instructing uh, musicians uh, after Bach's passing. It's it's one of the um, it's one of those things by Bach that kind of continuously got traded throughout. Uh, all the major composers you could probably imagine had exposure to this as uh, an instructional tool on, on playing the piano. Um, and it certainly got you, if you think about the instructional nature of Bach, why he put things together, and you think he's got these sons that he wants to develop into professional musicians, and there is sort of an educational nature to playing all the different keys. And I didn't mention that earlier, but there is. I mean, you're going to encounter music your whole life that's in different keys, and here, here is some practice pieces, if you will, in every key. Uh, that you can sit down and play. And it's kind of an interesting um, take on why Bach may have written this as an instructional medium. And because the fugues in so many ways are, are similar, uh, they start with a theme and they build usually three to four voices um, consistently throughout. Uh, fugues are, are difficult to play. There's no doubt about that if you've tried. Um, but the preludes have all these different styles, right? And so there is sort of an educational nature. What I'm going to play for you next is the opening prelude again. And this is uh, going to be realized on an instrument I have not um, used yet in the podcast, but is historically uh, accurate. We know Bach owned the clavichord in his home. Uh, it was amongst the things that were listed when he died of his possessions. And it is a very strange little instrument. If you've not listened to clavichord, uh, typically it was thought of as a superior instrument because it had some uh, effective capabilities. Uh, you could, for instance, uh, play louder on some notes than others. You could sort of wiggle the key and get the, the string inside the clavichord to wiggle along with the key to give sort of a, a more human approach to it. The one disadvantage, if I will, with the clavichord was that it was a very quiet instrument, a very intimate instrument. It was an instrument that you'd play for yourself and maybe somebody sitting next to you. You could sing with it, but it was never going to dominate uh, the sound. And if you play hard on it, it really, it sounds stressed. So this is um, Igor Kipnis. Uh, he did a recording, um, I believe on the Nunsuch label, this is a two-CD set, recording the Anna Magdalena notebook. And because that was included, he's recorded the opening prelude on the clavichord. Thank you. 
So I dovetailed in there a uh, harpsichord version. This is Pierre Hantai. Um, this was his uh, recording of the first book, the first um, collection of the Preludes and Fugues by Bach. It's released in 2003 on the Mirare label, and I've yet to see the second book uh, emerge. Um, but it just gave you kind of the, I mean, we weren't in the same recorded space. We don't have the same volume levels and everything, but definitely the harpsichord is a louder instrument than the clavichord. The clavichord to me is kind of a very interesting, intimate. Uh, it allows you to kind of ex express yourself in a way that would be difficult to do on the piano. Um, it lends itself, I think, to playing with elastic time a little more. Um, really wasn't exploited in that recording, but definitely that could could be something you add to the performance. And we get to the harpsichord again. I love the sound of the harpsichord uh, choice in this recording. It's one of the hallmarks for me. Um, it has a um, just a tone that is what I would say not typical. Uh, and I don't. I'm sorry, I do not have the booklet in front of me to tell you where it came from, but. Um, uh, Mr. Hentai, in his recordings, uh, especially the th the three Scarlatti recordings he did on the same label, and then this Bach recording, and then he did uh, the Goldberg Variations the second time, um, the instruments that he's choosing there uh, really, to me, have a really uh, neat flavor to them, I would say. Um, so I, I want to give you a, a little bit of a taste of what that sounds like. Next, I want to go into sort of, okay, we've got some uh, really famous, well-known music, and now let's start arranging it. Let's start playing with it a little bit. Let's see what we can bring to the table, if you will, if we get out of uh, just pure single keyboard music. The first example is one that came out many years ago. Um, this was re-released in 2001 on DECA, but I believe this is from the late 60s. Um, this is the Jacques Lucier Trio. This is their original album, Play Bach. And um, it's a reinterpretation of the Prelude and Fugue. I'll give you a little taste of each for a jazz trio.
I, I really, I get goosebumps when I hear that, even though that recording has been around for a long time and it's probably familiar to a lot of people because of that. Uh, I just, I just think they get to the essence of that music and they just kind of do something that when you hear it's like, oh my gosh. And it's like, but that feels so right. Right. Uh, he's playing with the rhythm. He, the, in the prelude, we, we didn't get any, uh, into hearing any drums yet, but we heard this sort of little noodling going around in the bass part. Right. So Bach is taking basically just that prelude is just block chords, but he's breaking them up, making, making us arpeggiate them. Da, 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 da. It's a C major chord. That's all it is. And we repeat it. And we keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, repeating that, that same motion, the upward motion. And because it's just C major, C major, and then he, of course, changes the harmonies with each set of groups of two, it, it lends you the opportunity to kind of play around with that because the harmony is sort of static. And that's where we get a piece like Gounod's Ave Maria, that adds a vocal line on top of the Bach prelude uh, because it's just easy to pick long notes because the harmony is changing slowly underneath. Uh, but in this, uh, we get that same type of treatment, except being on top, it's in the bottom. And then we get to the fugue. He really takes advantage, I think, uh, by having the bass come in on some of the, the fugue lines, the separate lines brings some transparency to what's happening, I think. But then just playing around with the rhythm and changing the style there on the spot really uh, was kind of cool. And I, I don't know if you're tapping your foot, but when I hear the, that rhythm going in the, in the drums and the cymbals, I, I want to start tapping my, my foot. I think it's very well done. I think that's why it, it was a very successful release. And then um, they kind of resurrected this idea. And if you go out in the Teldec label, um, Lucier has uh, collaborated again with uh, his friends to do kind of the new version of Play Bach. Um, and I've really enjoyed those albums too. But this was the Prelude and Fugue in C major. Um, I mentioned that before we had the Emerson Quartet um, which is a um, mainstream uh, string quartet. They've played, you know, all the major literature, and they've they've taken a few opportunities to go play the music of Bach. Uh, you can get they have a recording of the Art of Fugue for string quartet, and as I mentioned earlier, they have an album on Deutsche Grammophon entitled Fugues. They also um, have some competition out there, if you will. There is a recording I came across not too long ago that came actually out in 2013. Uh, this uh, ensemble's name is the Modern String Quartet, and they've recorded the entire Well-Tempered Clavier Book One for String Quartet and Arrangements. So I want you to not only hear the fugue to compare to what we heard in the opening from the Emerson, but um, just the flavor of how they take this piece for string quartet, as if it was not written for uh, the piano or a keyboard, the harpsichord, the clavichord at all.
So what do you think, huh? Kind of interesting. They're really taking some interpretive license here at changing dynamics, obviously changing the very flavor of this. The um, It's going a lot faster than uh, we were used to hearing it on the keyboard, but for me, it kind of works. It's very interesting to watch this one in terms of the waveforms because you can see those crescendos and decrescendos that they're taking. I'm also going to give you a taste here of the fugue from the modern string quartet uh, and see, let's see what they do with that. So I'd characterize that as, as not too different from the Emerson. They have played a more legato style. Legato, I've used that term a lot. I may need to explain it. Legato is when, if you think of kind of melted butter, not melted butter like pure melted liquid, but butter that's sort of soft. You're kind of smoothing over the line a little bit. You're not putting a lot of space between notes. Uh, and I, I actually prefer that approach for this particular few. I just think it works. It makes sense to me. But they're not pushing the limits, if you will, because again, their approach is let's interpret this as music that was originally written for a string quartet. They're kind of adapting it to their instrument. And I kind of appreciate that approach. They're not trying to pretend that they're a piano or something else. They're, they're kind of taking each one um, independently and giving it flavor in much the same way that I view the interpretation by Friedrich Gulda of Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. Each one is its own little world. I think they're kind of approaching things the same way. So I really recommend this recording. I've done a review of it uh, on the website, which would be a great time to plug the website where you can learn more about this podcast, bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. Um, and let's now end. Uh, I've given, given you the gamut here of piano, harpsichord, clavichord, um, and the idea of a string ensemble. Um, what if we were just to kind of blow this up and probably explore something? I'm guessing you've never heard this before. Uh, and this came across to me actually by, by way of a friend. Um, over 10 years ago, um, a friend of mine was sending me um, some music that he really liked because we talked about music and we were not, we definitely not appreciating each other's music at all. And so it was interesting. And I would send him maybe some Bach and he would send something back that was completely different. And I grew an appreciation for what he liked and hopefully he did the same for me. Um, and he shared with me because he was um, originally from Hong Kong, he had access to uh, a whole world that I was was ignorant of. And so this this group was called the YLK Organization. And I've since looked them up, and I don't believe they were a long-lived ensemble. But I often go back to this, this pair of two pieces that he sent me because to me they're so just so interesting, and I think it's well done. I really appreciate what they did. But they, they took two different pieces, 
and they are back to back and they basically built them around box prelude and fugue in c major i don't understand the language it's in cantonese uh, but hopefully you'll be able to hear uh, the original Bach underneath there, and uh, hopefully you'll have some appreciation for what they do with it. I just think it's kind of cool. It's different. It's um, It just kind of blew me away the first time I heard it. And I thank him for finding this because it was because I sent him this music that he sort of recognized and said, hey, isn't this Bach in the background? amazing uh, this just kind of points out to me what kind of high quality musical materials in each one of these shorts preludes and fugues of box puts together in this first book um, i hope you enjoyed hearing some of the different flavors i know we talked about all the issues dealing with the world temper clavier tuning hope they gave you some insight into the background and with that i'll close and thank you for listening to this edition of Bachcast. again this is the ylk organization the first piece was called I Am Having a Picnic with Bach in My Po Park. And this last one is Bach, the park manager and the construction site worker. Bye, boys, bye.